You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We've been looking at the high priestly prayer for the last several weeks. We come to the conclusion of chapter 17 today. Over the past two weeks, we saw first off that uh, Jesus prays specifically for God's glory to be accomplished through what is about to take place on the cross, and we talked the difference between the, the, the word glory as a noun and the word glory as a verb, that the, the word glory as a noun means his divine goodness on display. And then when we talk about showing him glory or glorifying him from the verb standpoint, we're talking about celebrating his divine goodness. Um, and so we talked about uh, how we do that. We talked about uh, looking for ways during our week, uh, things that we've been given to do, the work that we've been given to do. Um, Jesus talks about the work that he accomplished for the glory of God, uh, showing the divine goodness of God through the way that he worked and that we were challenged to do the same thing. Uh, and then last week we saw uh, the prayers for the disciples and we talked about God doing everything necessary to save us and to keep us saved. And while he does leave us in the world where we are susceptible to attack, he promises to sanctify us so that we can impact the world through our endurance. And so we talked about our preservation of salvation being a work of God. And we talked about believing for salvation and then trusting in the character of God that we will remain saved. And it's not based on our performance. It's based on the character of God that ultimately gives us that reason to trust in our eternal security. And then we talked about the fact that he leaves us in the world to go, uh, that we have purpose in being left in the world. He says in verse... Let's see, we'll read in verse 14. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so we talked about our relationship to the world last week. And we talked about the extreme examples where we can be extreme to the conservative side where we isolate ourselves to where we're no longer good to the world because we've cut ourselves off so much from it. There's no interaction with the world for us to impact it in a way where the world would come to know Christ. We also talked about the inoculation extreme where we feel like we're almost immune to being affected by the world. And so we go head first into the world to try to make an impact. But oftentimes we find with this extreme view, that the world ends up impacting us more than we end up impacting it because we look so much like the world. That careful balance in between, we talked about insulation, where we're in the world, we're not being affected by the world, instead we are doing the affecting. And so there's a balance of cutting ourselves off from some of it, but also infiltrating parts of it as well so that we can make an impact in the way that Jesus did. He says, I sent them into the world, uh, as you sent me into the world. And we know that Jesus had a great impact in the world. And so I talked to you application-wise last week about evaluating how you relate to other Christians. Are we pursuing fellowship and reconciliation from the unity side? And then how well are we relating to the world? Have we functionally removed ourselves from the world? Jesus says, I'm not asking you to remove them from the world. But sometimes if we're not careful, we in our desire for God's truth, we might cut ourselves off from the world so much that we have virtually removed ourselves. And we have to be careful that we don't do that, um, that instead we engage the world uh, for the uh, purposes of impacting it. 
All right, so that brings us to the last part of the High Priestly Prayer, uh, part three, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Our summary sentence for today. Observable unity is an evangelistic necessity with our common ground regarding the gospel and our common pursuit to love being the tangible ways that the lost world understands that God sent Jesus because he loves people. Observable unity. So the lost world being able to observe the unity that Christians enjoy together is an evangelistic necessity. Jesus says that the world needs to see that type of unity. And the type of unity that we're going to see is our common ground regarding the gospel, our common pursuit to love. And it's through those two avenues that we give tangible ways for the lost world to understand. And Jesus wants them to understand two things, that God sent Jesus because he loves people. For our kids, we should love others so that lost people will better understand God's love. Observable unity is an evangelistic necessity with our common ground regarding the gospel and our common pursuit to love being the tangible ways that the lost world understands that God sent Jesus because he loves people. Obviously, we're not going to be unified in every and all ways, Um, and I don't know that Jesus expected that when he prayed for it. Um, But I do believe he had some things in mind, um, specifically the things that unite us versus divide us. Um, You know, one of the common things that we talk about at Trinity, um, and one of the reasons that I believe our Christian school is as large as it is, um, because I come from a background of being a part of a very small Christian school, uh, a a Christian school that was very narrow-minded in its teachings. Um, Not that the teachings were wrong, but very narrow-minded in allowing others to be a part of that community without feeling some type of pressure to believe in any and every way that we were believing, right? Whereas at Trinity, and I think one of the reasons why we, again, have been able to grow to the size that we are and impact the amount of kids that we're impacting is that we focus far more on the things that we agree with Uh, in other churches versus what we disagree with, right? So even in our Bible classes, our chapel services, we have so much content that we agree on, we don't have to deviate from it to the things that we disagree on, right? Like we have a wealth of, of, of knowledge and truth to discuss with our students that they will absolutely hear in the churches that they go to without us having to harp on the things that we disagree about, things that create division, and not necessarily unhealthy division, um, but create denominational division where we are going to worship differently based on interpretations of Scripture, 
right? But there's so much that we agree on. It's why I'm able to work at a school that's an assembly of God's school, right? I disagree with a, a lot of their theology, a lot of their preferences, a lot of the things that they see in Scripture, but there's so much that unites us. So me and the leadership of that church, there's so much that we agree on. We're able to do ministry together. I'm able to work in that school and feel very comfortable working in that school, knowing that it's far more about what we agree on than what we disagree about. It's that type of unity that the world needs to see, our common ground regarding the gospel, our common desire to love others, that gives the world tangible reasons, tangible ways to see that God sent Jesus because he loves people. Right? As we look at this passage, um, there's a couple of questions that I want us to ask to better understand what it is that Jesus is saying here. Right? Number one, who's Jesus praying for? Well, we know right off the bat in verse 20, he's praying for his current disciples, those that are in the upper room with him, Peter, James, and John, and others that are sitting there. But he also is praying for us 2,000 years later, right? He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We sit here today, we gather in this room every Sunday because the apostles, the disciples, spread the gospel intentionally and faithfully, right? We are a spiritual descendant of that small band of men and women who, who saw the resurrection, heard the gospel, and communicated it to others, right? We are, we are a spiritual offspring of those people. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul tells Timothy, we got to keep this going, we got to keep this knowledge of Christ going so that more and more people continue to believe, not just those that are living right now, but generationally down the road, we want to see this continue to be the case. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, right? The desire is that the gospel would be taught and explained and people would be discipled in its truth so that they can then turn around and do it towards someone else and towards someone else and towards someone else, right? And so the gospel has been flowing from Jesus's prayer way back here before he goes to the cross that there would be people who would come from the teaching of the apostles' word. And we stand here today, we sit here today as prime examples of that. He's praying for us in addition to those disciples who were alive at the time. Question number two, what does Jesus pray for? What, is it, what exactly is he praying for when he has us in mind? Well, he says he's praying for these, but not only these, those who will also believe in me through their word, verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also may be in us, that so the world may believe that you have sent me. Right? So he prays for this unity to be enjoyed by those who follow Jesus. Prays that we would be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. But that's not the only thing that he prays for. He prays in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there's also this element where he's praying for our endurance towards a heavenly reunion, right? So he's praying that we will be with him one day where he's about to go, that we would be able to join him there so that we can see him in all of his glory, so that we can enjoy him forever. So there's an element of endurance that he's praying for, that we will make it to the end, that we will be uh, shown to be worthy of that reunion, right? That the Holy Spirit working through us carries us to the end, whether that's the end of our life or whether that's the end of, of time where Jesus comes back, that we make it and that there's this glorious reunion. So Jesus has two things primarily on his mind as he gets ready to leave the disciples in anticipation of them making more disciples, right? He says, I I pray that they'll be unified. There'll be consistency. 2,000 years later, that there will be consistent resemblance to what the early church looked like, that there's common ground, common ground regarding the gospel and what we know about God and what we believe about God, right? And then he also prays, man, I pray that they make it because I'm leaving them in the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, right? I'm asking you to keep them from the evil one. And I'm praying that they make it to the end, that they are with me once again one day, that this is just a temporary departure and that we will be reunited again, whether in death or whether through the return of Christ. So these are the things that he's praying for. Why does he pray this? Why does he pray this? And here's where the evangelistic aspect comes into play. He's not just praying for our unity in and of itself. He's praying for our unity to translate into something. He's praying for our love in unity to translate into something. And it's the furtherance of his kingdom. Look what he says in verse 21. Praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that. Here's why. Here's why the unification is so important to Jesus. So the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes on to say in verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I mean, Jesus has, has got this mindset where, okay, he's been the visible demonstration of who the Father is, right? The Father and the Son are one, and so he's been the visible, tangible understanding of the Father to so many people for the 30 years that he's been on the, on the planet here in this physical form. And he's about to leave. And he's saying, look, I want the people that are, that are being left behind, those that have committed to follow me, I want them to enjoy such a level of unity that the lost world begins to understand who you are, Father, because they are now going to be the tangible um, model, the tangible example of who God is. And, and that's what's been tasked to us, is that our relationships with each other is to model and demonstrate the relationship that the Trinity enjoys. He says, I want them to be one just as you and me are one, Father. I want there to be such love and unity and commonness that the world is able to look at that and say, you know what? Jesus really is who he said he was. The the, the Father really did send Jesus. Jesus is more than just a teacher. He's more than just a prophet. He really is the Messiah. He's been sent just as he said he was sent. And 
the love that we have, this supernatural love that we're supposed to have towards each other that transcends anything that the world can, can mimic, right? That is supposed to communicate something about the love that God has, both for us and for the Son, right? That's, that's heavy stuff being applied to us, right? But it's something that Jesus is praying for in its effectiveness, which should give us great encouragement and hope because Jesus has said already, Father always hears my prayers. Father always answers my prayers, right? So he is praying that we will have such a level of unity and love for each other that the lost world looks at us with wandering eyes, wondering eyes, and says, what is, what is happening there in that community? The unity that they demonstrate when they're so different from each other, when they have such reason for division, right? And yet they keep coming back together. Even when there is conflict, they work through the conflict, right? That, that it draws the lost world to Christ. That's why he prays these things. He's praying for unity. He's praying for endurance. He's praying for this commonness because he wants the lost world to respond to it. He wants others to see and believe that he has been sent from the Father, that God sent Jesus, that the Father sent Jesus. He wants others to see and know the love of the Father, that God loves people. The lost world can't see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they will believe about God. Think about that for a second. They can't see God. They don't know God. But they can see us because they work with us. They live near us. They interact with us. And what they see in us is what they will believe about God. So what responsibility does that give to us? Well, number one, we need to pursue unity for gospel effectiveness. We need to pursue unity for gospel effectiveness. For our kids, Jesus prayed that we would show love to help others believe the gospel. Jesus prayed that we would show love to help others believe the gospel. Think about the, the urgency that this gives to us as individuals, that the unity that we have with other believers, and we're going to see this, the unity that we have with other individuals, the, the unity that we have within this local church, the unity that this local church has with other local churches, like the, the gospel effectiveness is tied to the unity that we have, right? And it's something that God is working in us and he's very mindful of, and so it will be accomplished, right? But we have this urgency in us now to say, you know what? If I know that I'm experiencing disunity with somebody, right? I should not be simply motivated to get that fixed so that my life is better, so that that can be corrected so that we can get back to being friends, right? There has to also be this perspective in our minds that as I work towards unity with that individual, I am working towards the effectiveness of the gospel with maybe another coworker that I'm trying to share the gospel with, right? So unsaved coworker knows that you and this other coworker are at odds with each other, right? And you're over here trying to share the gospel, da, 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 da. And, and coworker may never tell you this, but coworker is blinded to the gospel and resistant to the gospel because they see this disunity that you have with this other coworker, right? And what Jesus is saying is that as we pursue unity, right, that especially when it's a believer, right, when we pursue unity and, and this unity is on display, 
man, it opens, it opens the world up to believing these things about God, that God sent Jesus and God loves people. There's an urgency that we need to feel for pursuing unity with others. Number one, we find unity in our salvation and the apostles' teaching. So when we talk about the unity that we have with other believers, it is rooted in our common salvation, and it is rooted in the apostles' teaching. So when Jesus is praying for unity here, he's not telling us to abandon or compromise truth, right? He's not telling us to throw truth to the wind and to be unified for the sake of truth, for, for uh, or, or without truth. He's not, he's not telling us to do that. He's not telling us to pursue unity at the cost of truth. It's grounded in the fact that we have a common salvation and that it's based off the apostles' teaching. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also, uh, they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one. Right? So there's this this aspect that for us to even have unity with other believers, it's based on the fact that we are in Christ, right? And going back to, it's those who believe in me through the word of those disciples, right? And we are called to contend for this type of truth in Jude, verses three and four. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, right? We don't, we don't pursue unity and sacrifice truth, right? We contend for the truth of a common salvation, and we contend for the truth of the apostles' teaching, once for all delivered to the saints. So we are one in him as a result of the gospel. And, and, and what kind of unites us, what unites us at Trinity with all these other churches that come, is that it's by grace through faith in Christ alone. Like that's, 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 the, that's the root of the gospel that, that unites us, right? That it's by grace, that it's through faith, not of works, Right? And it's, it's through Christ alone that we can be saved. And Galatians 1 tells us that we can't deviate to a different gospel, that we're to reject people who might come to us with a different gospel. And then in 2 John chapter 7, we even have encouragement to, for lack of a better word, be disunified with someone who comes with a different gospel. In verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, right? Those who don't believe that God sent Jesus, right? Like that's what he's hoping for, is that I want the world to believe that the Father sent Jesus. So John says, for those who don't believe in the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one as the deceiver and the antichrist, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So again, we're not supposed to be unified with people who distort the gospel. We're not to, we're not to compromise truth for the sake of unity for those who don't believe what we're called to believe in. 
We have a oneness with other believers in the gospel, and we have a oneness in our core doctrines and practice. In Acts chapter 2, we see this on display. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We see what the early church was devoted to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We see a picture of unity here at the end of chapter 2 where there's commonness in regards to salvation, commonness in the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and now they're loving each other and showing that unity, and the world is looking onto it and desiring now to come to it, we see here. And again, I think that, that there's, there's not a need to press here that Jesus is, um, that Jesus would view denominations as, as sinful uh, organizations or sinful institutions. Um, I think there's some intentionality in the way that the apostles' teaching doesn't always clarify for us everything. Um, and, and, you know, we've said this before, that when we, when we get to be with Jesus, we'll find out who was right and who was wrong about certain things. But I do think it would be disunifying even to try to press that everybody believe exactly like us, because that'll get us nowhere, right? That'll get us nowhere trying to force our own individual beliefs on everything onto other people. Instead, I believe we really highlight and focus in on the things that unite us versus those things that might would divide us. And it's in that unity of the things that unite us that great unity can be shown to the world. It really can be. Um, and, and, I, and again, I get to see that on display regularly at Trinity where my teachers come from different churches, the leadership comes from different churches, and yet we can unite around common purposes, right? We can unite around the same gospel, we can unite around the fact that we want to see other kids come to know the gospel, and we can be unified in our approach to do that. Number two, we learn unity from the model of the Trinity. We learn this type of unity by looking towards the Trinity. We've been given an example that Jesus points us to, the type of unity that he's praying for, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They may also be in us so that we, the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus desires a supernatural unity that is understood best through the Trinitarian relationship. It's a supernatural work that requires a supernatural explanation. So the more, really, the more we learn about God, the more we learn about how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work together, uh, we grow closer to each other too. As we learn how the Trinity operates and how the Trinity works together, it allows us to better know how to relate to each other. Thomas Manton, who was a Reformed English Puritan, said, divisions in the church breed atheism. Divisions in the church breed atheism. So the reverse of that would be unity in the church builds belief. Unity in the church builds belief. So we find unity in our salvation in the apostles' teaching. We learn unity from the model of the Trinity. And then number three, we show unity 
through Jesus's pattern of glory. Now he tells us, he says in verse 22, talking to his father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now I believe he is talking about the pattern or the process to glory that he leaves this example for us. And we find that example in Philippians chapter two. Philippians is the first book of the Bible, I think, that I ever taught through verse by verse from start to finish. And it was the first, first thing that we tackled when I got to Mount Gilead as the youth pastor. Um, and the reason I did that uh, was strategic in the sense of a lot of the people that are here that were a part of that youth group had been with the same youth pastor for seven years, right? And he was leaving and here comes a new leader that they didn't get to really pick or choose, that they were just kind of given by the church leadership, right? And for me, it was very important for us to understand that we've got to be unified, right? Despite a change in leadership, we have to be unified around the things that unite us, even though I may not be exactly like the previous youth pastor that you had, right? My interests are going to be different. My likes and dislikes are going to be different, right? But there was an importance for me to communicate unity to our group so that we could be effective moving forward. Because Philippians is all about unity for the sake of the gospel. It's all about unity for the sake of the gospel. And Christ is the ultimate example of how to achieve that type of unity. So in Philippians chapter two, we see this path to glory that Jesus leaves for us. In verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, which mind is he talking about? Well, back up a little bit. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have this type of mind through Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We talk about us receiving a type of glory as well, right? We talk about glorification, that when we make it to the end, when Jesus comes back, we will be changed. We will be resurrected if we've died. We will be transformed if we're still alive when Jesus comes back. And we will receive what we call commonly glorification, this new body that no longer sins, that no longer dies, that no longer suffers, right? That is fully made in the image of God without the taintedness of sin, right? We get to experience that. And the way that we get there is through faithful endurance, right? And Jesus gives us the example of what faithful endurance looks like. It's putting the needs of others above your own needs, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves. It's this lowly service that leads to future exaltation. The key words that I would want you to remember from this section is humility, right? Thinking properly about oneself, Humility with a mindset on others. Humility with a mindset on others. He tells us 
If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. Those are two things that we're talking about here this morning. This same mind, this common agreement, common belief about the gospel, common mindset about who God is, right? And then this common desire to love, this common desire for unity, to reconcile, to forgive when need be, so that that unity would help the lost world to believe. What we find here in this passage in Philippians 2 that was completely absent from Jesus, right? There's, um, there's no selfishness. There's no competition. There's no rivalry. There's no discord. And there's no division. These type of things can't be named among us if we're going to be effective with the gospel. So we have to step back and evaluate ourselves and say, where am I still selfish? Where do I still compete against other people? Where is their rivalry? There should be no rivalry within our church, right? We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be competing against each other for anything, right? Instead, we're to have this hu- humility on display in our life where we constantly put the needs of others above our own needs. We desire the success of others above our own success, which is completely contrary to the world, completely contrary to the world. And yet it's the, the model, the example that Jesus left for us. Now, when we talk about unity, I want us to think of it in terms of three different venues or three different avenues, right? Number one, we must pursue unity individually with other believers. Right, so we all have responsibility to pursue unity with other individual believers. So this is outside the, the church context, outside of a group context. Instead, we're talking about neighbors, coworkers, family members, we pursue unity with other believers individually. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to do this, right? Urgent to do this, to maintain unity. Now, why is this hard? Why is it hard for us to maintain unity with other believers? If we, if, we, if we have a commonness in the gospel, right, we both enjoy forgiveness of our sins. We both enjoy the same hope of glorification. Why is it sometimes hard for us to get along? Well, obviously, sin plays a role in this. And the fact is, is that we are sinners, and we hurt and feel hurt very easily, Right? We're really good at hurting other people, and we're really bad at not feeling hurt from other people, right? Very quickly, we will, we will feel hurt and sometimes um, reinterpret somebody's intentions so that we feel hurt even more because we're sinful, right? We hurt easily, and we feel hurt easily. Man, I feel like Lauren and I have been battling this with our kids, with our boys recently. I mean, they're just constantly hurting each other and feeling hurt and telling on each other, just back and forth. They just can't, they can't agree a lot lately, and they're very quick to point out when the other has done something to hurt them, right? 
and, and, and it feels hurtful to them, even though we kind of sit down and explain like, hey, y'all were just laughing at like a second ago, right? Like obviously brother didn't mean to hurt you and now you're just, you know, uber offended by him and his actions when you were just laughing about it a minute ago, right? But we are sinful individuals who hurt very easily and feel hurt very easily. And it, it, it creates such an, an urgency and we have to be eager to work towards correcting that. That's extending forgiveness when we need to extend it, right? Seeking it when we need to seek it. And the Bible never excuses us from playing a role in both of those things, right? The Bible says if, if we know that we've offended somebody, like it's our fault, we have to go fix it. And if we've been offended by somebody, we don't just sit and wait for them to come fix it. We go pursue that too, right? Why? Because the gospel becomes more effective when we do that when we pursue unity and we pursue reconciliation, right? Jesus isn't saying, I'm praying that there will be zero conflict and always unity. He recognizes there's going to be conflict, there's going to be division, there's going to be hurt feelings, and forgiveness is going to need to be extended. And he is praying that the world will see that type of interaction. We'll see that type of interaction. Secondly, we must pursue unity locally within our church family. So individually, we have responsibility, but then we also have this responsibility to be a part of a local church and show unity as a group collectively. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. There's to be this this commonness amongst a group of believers that get together and gather. There's to be unity that's seen in that gathering. Why is this hard? Well, it's hard because we say that the church is a family, but it doesn't always feel like a family overnight, right? Like there's, there's work and effort that has to be put forth for us to love each other on the, the same level that we love our family, right? But I believe that the local church is to be so important in the life of a believer that to leave it, to divorce from it, would be as complicated as what we would see when, when family members separate, that we're to be that intertwined with each other, that to leave the church, to depart from the church, would be such a difficult thing to do because we've joined ourselves so intimately with each other. And in that, in that joining together, just like a family will, will wear on each other a little bit and annoy each other a little bit, right, and frustrate each other, and spouses have to get back on the same page, and kids have to get back on the same page, church members sometimes have to get back on the same page. But too often times, what do we see? Hurt happens and people bail. And they leave and go find a different church where maybe they won't be hurt again. And there's something special about the lost world seeing hurt happen within the local church and then watch it get fixed and watch it get mended and watch it heal. Then the lost world says, you know what? I might want to be a part of that because that's supernatural. Maybe God did send Jesus, like he said. Maybe God does love people because I'm seeing the love of people on display in a supernatural way. And then lastly, we must pursue unity universally towards our larger church body. And going back to that, that last one, pursuing unity locally within the church family, 
Not to, not to knock the city of Griffin, but Griffin has, for me, this strong reputation of disunity amongst its churches. I've, I've been in ministry there, so I've seen it firsthand, but then I also got it secondhand from Ryan over the years, how churches would grow and swell and get real big, and then what would you expect? There's conflict and division and hurt, and people bail from those churches, and they flock to a different church. And then that church starts to swell in that community. And I could give you church after church that's had these years of growth and productivity and then years of decline, and it always co- uh, coincides with another church growing and swelling. Because for whatever reason, my experience in Griffin has been such disunity amongst believers and then it's exhibited in the ways that churches grow and, 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 and shrink. And then for us, as we look kind of as the, well, what role do we play in trying to be unified with other local churches around here? Why is that hard? Why is it hard? Why do, why do we not see local churches banding together more than we do? Well, it's because more oftentimes than not, when we should be mission-minded, we're business-minded, right? Churches fear losing members to other churches because the church is, is constructed so much like a building at, or a business at times where it needs the tithes, it needs the offerings, it needs the giving to sustain its structure, right? And I've been a part of ministries like that where you're, you're desperate for visitors to come, not because you want their gifts to be put on display in your church, not because you want them to, to, to come and, and find Christ, right? You want them to come because you know we really need your money because our budget is suffering, right? And so it's, it's an unfortunate plague for churches where there's a, a hesitancy to band together. But I do think that, that we need to push through that and to strive for a type of unity with local churches in this area. And Tyson and I at times have been able to meet with pastors in this area to try to create that type of unity. I've sat down with, with numerous pastors in the area to let them know that we're here, that we're in agreement with them, that we share a commonness with the gospel, and that we want to see the kingdom grow in whatever ways that we can jointly do that together. And we've partnered at times with other churches in the area with different endeavors and, and whatnot, but it's difficult. It's difficult because of that business-mindedness. But I do believe we have a responsibility to pursue unity individually with other believers, to pursue it locally within our church family, and to do it universally towards our larger church family as well. We pursue it for gospel effectiveness. Number two, we wait patiently for future glory. We wait patiently for future glory. For our kids, Jesus prayed that we would join him in heaven so we could be with him forever. And we'll wrap up real quick with this. In John chapter 17, again, back part of it. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see me, see my glory that you have given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We're going to see him as he truly is, 1 John 3, 2 says. We're going to see him on full display when he comes back, but until then, Number one, we need to keep learning about God, knowing we will gain a greater knowledge of who God is in eternity. All right, Jesus says, I've made known to them your name, and I'm going to continue to make it known. How does he do that? 
Well, certainly through his word, through the regular teaching of his word, you studying it, you doing it on your own, you sitting underneath it, God's name continues to be made known. But he's also making his name known through our circumstances, right? As we see him show his faithfulness to us, we are learning about God as we see him experientially, right? Jesus says, I'm going to keep doing this. They already know you, but they're going to continue to know you in a deeper way. And we will certainly know him to the fullest when he comes back and we are joining him for eternity. And then number two, we keep loving others in response to learning about God, knowing we will experience a greater understanding of how God loves. As we learn about God, it should naturally spill over into us loving others. So we keep loving others in response to learning about God, knowing we will experience a greater understanding of how God loves. He says, I will continue to make it known, talking about his name, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus desires that our love for each other would increase with the full realization that when we are with him for eternity, we see him in all of his glory, we will fully know what it means to be loved by him. Two points of application for us this morning. Number one, do you need to do anything this week to fix disunity with individual relationships? Just pause for a second right now and think, is there anybody in your life that you know has feelings of disunity towards you? And if anybody comes to mind, you need to feel an urgency to get that fixed this week. I know there's one individual in my life that I need to do that with this week. And I've been sitting on it for maybe a week, a week and a half, two weeks. That's because I was trying to be showing unity and it resulted in disunity. And so I've been frustrated at the fact that my efforts to show unity actually resulted in disunity. So I've been selfish in my response to not go ahead and still pursue the unity. So I need to do that. If somebody comes to your mind, there's disunity. You need to fix it. I'm going to try to do mine tomorrow. Number two, do you need to do anything this week to fix disunity within this church? So the first one, thinking of relationships outside this church. Second one is within this church. All right, we want this to be a place where visitors come, unbelievers look into from the outside. The reputation of this church is one of unity, one of love, one of hospitality, right? Is there anything that you need to do to fix disunity within this church? Maybe there's ill will that you've been harboring towards somebody, and you know it affects the way that you interact with them. They don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Almost every time in my life where there's been disunity, whether I have felt it towards somebody else or they have felt it towards me, rarely is it a case where both of us have known about it, Right? Most of the time, you're informing somebody for the very first time that you're frustrated with them or likewise, right? So you may be harboring something and you're just wondering, like, when are they going to come fix this? And they may not have a clue that they're supposed to come fix it, right? It's not even on their radar, right? If you know that there's something that needs to be fixed, you need to pursue fixing it. Our family worship this question this week. What are some ways we can pursue unity within our family towards each other? What are some ways we can pursue unity within our church, within our church as a family? I want to read to you one last verse and we'll close. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ, for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And the book of Philemon is a great example of unity being pursued Paul appealing to one man to show unity towards another who really doesn't deserve it, right? He's wronged him. He's created the disunity himself. Paul reaches out and says, show unity. Welcome this brother in Christ, right? Why? So that with one voice, we can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus prays for unity, this commonness amongst us, so that we can worship God together so the lost world looks at it and says, you know what? We do believe that God sent Jesus. We do believe that God loves people because we're seeing that on display. We're seeing the supernatural change take place before our eyes. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Uh, we thank you for giving us the supernatural ability to love and be loved despite our sin towards each other. We're thankful that with the Holy Spirit's power, um, we can ask for forgiveness from each other and we can experience forgiveness from each other. We can experience reconciliation even when we don't deserve it, even when we've done something to, to cause the disunity, God. We thank you that supernaturally you are changing our hearts so that we can, we can have the same mind where there's a reduction of selfish ambition, a reduction of um, conceit, a reduction of rivalry and competition, and instead, you're replacing it with an attitude of humility where we count the needs of others above our own needs. And God, I pray that you would continue to, to sanctify us in that area. Lord, I pray that we would pursue unity where we know that it's lacking right now. Lord, that we would go after it eagerly, not just so that our personal guilt can be removed or the burden that we're carrying can be lifted. God, help us to go after the unity for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the lost world around us that is looking at us and saying, if this is how believers interact, I don't think I want to be a part of it. God, help us to instead create what it is you prayed for, a level of commonness and unity and love that attracts others to you. God, we echo the prayers of Jesus today. I pray that you would unify us unify so that the world around us would believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.